give you a little bit of background on it. Uh, the book of Joshua is the first of the historical, what we call the historical books. If you remember, we, uh, we divide the Old Testament into five areas. Uh, we have the law, or the Pentateuch, we call it. And uh, this is the first five books of the Bible. And then we have uh, from Joshua through to Job, uh, just before Job, and those are the historical books. And then we have uh, from Job through uh, Song of Solomon are the poetic books. And then, um, uh, is that right? I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, Ecclesiastes. And some writing, some song, Ecclesiastes, yeah. Uh, and then Isaiah through the end of the Old Testament, uh, we have the major prophets first, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those would be the major prophets. And then from then on, after them, then you find the minor prophets. So five divisions uh, of the Old Testament. So we're beginning today the historical books. Uh, so these will range from here all the way until we get to the book of Job. And um, the interesting thing about Joshua is it is a seamless continuation from the end of Deuteronomy. If you take and read the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy and immediately flip to Joshua chapter 1 and begin reading, there's no speed bump in between them. They seem to seamlessly fit together. And so I look at Joshua as a transitional book from the law to the history uh, that's given of the nation of Israel. There are, are a lot of exciting things. I love reading the book of Joshua. Uh, anybody says the, the Bible is a boring book, they need to go back and read it again. There is so much, uh, especially uh, as a young man, reading the wars and the battles. and uh, There's just so much intriguing things there, interesting things there. The book of Joshua has three major military campaigns that are listed in it. Uh, out of those three major military campaigns, they face over 30 different enemies <coughs> of the children of Israel. And so to say that the book of Joshua is an exciting book, I think, is quite an understatement uh, in that it is full of action. It's full of things that are happening. The, um, the idea of the book of Joshua is the fact that uh, they're conquering the land. They're going in to conquer the land. And uh, you'll find that in the first half of the book, up to about chapter 13 or so, you'll see uh, them going in and conquering the land. Then from about chapter 13, middle of chapter 14, through to chapter 24, you'll find that they are uh, dividing and settling in the land and getting getting things uh, situated. I do have all the notes today again typed for you, and they'll be available after class. And there's a colored map there, so you can see a lot of the places that we're talking about today and uh, help you get kind of a feel for the country and the land over there uh, that we're looking at. Uh, the, the original name of Joshua uh, and the reason I say it's an original name is because Moses changes his name. Uh, in the book of Numbers, chapter number 13, you'll find that Moses will change Joshua's name. But his original name means salvation. And Moses changed his name in Numbers, chapter number 13. Hold your place here in Joshua. Let's take a quick look at this. Go back to Numbers, chapter 13. And uh, let's look in verse number, we'll go to verse number, let's start in verse 8. And um, then we will move down and read down through about verse 16. <coughs> Numbers 13, and let's uh, go to verse number 8. Um, and of the tribe of Ephraim, uh, Ashiah, the son of Nun, is referencing there Joshua. 
We know that because uh, in Joshua it talks about the fact that he was the son of man. And so we know that this is who it's in reference to. Now if you look down to verse number 16, uh, there these, the Bible says, These are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Oshua, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. And the, the way that that is spelled is a J-E-H-O-S-H-U-A. Jehoshua does not mean just salvation, but now it means uh, the Lord, our salvation. Or I have to I have to use this term, and I'm going to I'm going to teach you something a little bit this morning about the name of God. The name of God is literally an unpronounceable name. In the Hebrew, it is spelled Y. If we were to spell it with English letters, it would be Y H W H. There are no vowels, and the Hebrew language doesn't use vowels; it uses accent marks and breath marks. For us to be able to talk about the name of God, some people got together a number of years ago and they took the name Adonai, which is another name for God, and they pulled vowels from the name Adonai and put them in between those letters and they pronounced it Yahweh. How many of you have heard the name Yahweh? Okay, that is not God's name, right? Uh, that is our way of being able to convey uh, relating to God's name, but his name is unpronounceable. Uh, in the English and the Hebrew language, it is Y-H-W-H. And uh, it really, I, I was listening to Brother Cully, and I had heard this before, and I heard him say this too, and I agree with him because of what little bit of Hebrew I did study years ago, that when you pronounce the name uh, in Hebrew, it is almost a sound of breathing, a breath sound, uh, of expelling breath. It was, a, it was a very, uh, almost like you're just breathing the name of God. And uh, what an amazing uh, thought about this. So we may use the word Yahweh occasionally to mention that name. So there's an unpronounceable name. Please don't take me for somebody who's correcting the name of God or making it something it's not. The only way I know to reference that, because we cannot pronounce it, is to use that. So Understand that Yahweh is not his name, but that's the only way I have to reference his Hebrew uh, name here. And so, uh, when, it, when, when and I thought all that to say this, when, God, uh, when Moses changed Joshua's name, it literally meant Yahweh, the, the Y-H-W-H, is salvation. God is salvation. Our, uh, our King James translators in the Old Testament, whenever they changed the name of God, they translated it, they either kept it in its form or they uh, would uh, change it to L, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. If you notice in your Bible, a lot of times the word Lord is all capitals. Sometimes it is lowercase capitals. And so every time we find the proper name of God used in Scripture, it is used uh, or, or translated in our King James Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. So you'll know that uh, down the road. Um, so Joshua's name was changed by by no uh, by Moses. Sorry, apparently I was getting way back there in Genesis. Uh, he was changed by Moses to uh, Jeho uh, Jehoshua, and then later was shortened to Joshua, which is what we use and refer to today. Um, it's uh, oh, let's see here. I've got a couple things that I left in my notes that were from another lesson, so I got them circled here. I have to let you know what those are as we start the next one. Uh, they do believe that the author of the book of Joshua is Joshua. There is uh, not as much proof 
that Joshua is the author of Joshua as it was about Moses being the author of the first five books of the Bible. There is no external source that we can look at uh, in Scripture, nothing outside of the book of Joshua that would indicate this. Uh, and there are certainly are portions of the book of Joshua that we believe uh, were probably written by some other people. But I believe that the vast majority of this book was written by Joshua. There are a couple of reasons why. Let's first turn to Joshua chapter number 24, if you will. And we'll look at one of those. Joshua chapter number 24. And uh, let's go down to verse number 26. Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 26. The Bible says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it uh, up there under an oak uh, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And so we find here that Joshua writes uh, some of these words at least that we know of. Now whether that verse there is referencing the entirety of the book of Joshua or not is something that is up for a little bit of speculation. But but uh, primarily most uh, people that study are in agreement that Joshua wrote most of, if not all of, uh, this particular book. In Joshua chapter number 18, if you'll turn over there for a moment, we'll find another clue maybe to the fact that he was the author. Joshua chapter number 18, and uh, notice in verse number 9, And the men went and passed through the land and described it uh, by cities in the seventh part in a book. And so they were writing again a description of what they saw in a book. And so again, we... We believe that that kind of gives a hint towards the fact that Joshua, who was there at that time, uh, who was an eyewitness to these events, was probably the one that wrote them. Um, He certainly was the best qualified person to write uh, this particular book. And in chapter number 5, if you'll turn back there, we find the last piece of evidence uh, internally that Joshua is the author of this book. Joshua chapter number 5, and let's look at verse number 1. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until, notice this little word here, it's the first time he's used this in this book, we, he uses a third person uh, pronoun, we were passed uh, over, and their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. And so every other time you'll find throughout this, he refers to the children of Israel as they or them. In chapter 5, verse number 1, we find we, and so there's another indication that quite possibly um, Joshua is the, the author of that. There's enough evidence there that I would not argue the point. There's also not enough evidence there that I would not argue the point uh, either way. And so I personally do believe that Joshua is the author of the vast majority, if not all of it. Uh, but if somebody said differently, I'm not going to sit there and hold toes with them on that. Uh, The time of Joshua, the book is divided into three different geographical regions or three primary areas that the book deals with. The first part of it (coughs) through about about chapter 5 is their time on the east side of the Jordan River. So if you can imagine uh, the book centering From the west into, or from the east into the west, uh, and crossing the Jordan River there. The first five books of Joshua deal with them on that east side of Jordan before they've crossed into the Promised Land. 
And uh, then the middle part of the book from chapter 6 through the middle of chapter number 13, you'll find the primary location that they're in is the land of Canaan. They've now entered and they're conquesting the land. They're conquering those people that were in there. And they're seeing God do miraculous things. You want to read something exciting, start reading some of these battles that were fought and won. Some of them that were lost and for reasons that I think are uh, worth looking at. But if you want to get into a book that gives you some excitement and uh, and you learn a lot about the Israel's history, uh, where they are at, uh, the Palestinians are not the ones that are legally uh, have the rightful place uh, over there in Israel. Israel is. God promised that land to Israel. And uh, he promised uh, way back to Abraham every place at the foot of his soul had tread. And as far as he could see, that he would give it to him and to his inheritance. And uh, so we find they go into Canaan. Uh, they spend a good part of the book of Joshua dealing with the battles and the wars that are fought there. And then from chapter 13 to the end of the book, through chapter 24, uh, we find uh, the 12 tribes uh, being spread out, being divided. On the map that I'll give you, you'll see where those tribes were located generally. Uh, again, remember these are maps that are not always, uh, they're, they're very, very close, but they're not always extremely accurate. You're not going to be able to go out here and do a survey with them or anything. They're, they're rough estimates of where these were originally uh, based on what we know from the Bible and the boundaries that were given. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, two and a half of the tribes settled on the east side of Jordan. They never went into the promised land. This is interesting because God had given the, all the children of Israel a place in the promised land. And they, when it was time to go, they enjoyed and they loved the land on this side of Jordan so much that they said, we would rather stay here. And those tribes were Gad and Reuben and then half of the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, so Gad, Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh stayed on the other side of the Jordan. The requirement, the stipulation that Joshua put on them, that God put on them, was that they were not allowed, if, if the nation of Israel was going to come as a force and drive out the inhabitants before them and let them settle on the east side of the Jordan River, then they were also going to be required to go with their brothers into Canaan to help conquer the land. They could not stay on the east side of Jordan and just enjoy their homes while the rest of the tribes were out there fighting and doing their, they're trying to conquer Canaan. So God allowed them to stay on the east side of Jordan, and they have done well over there. But when, uh, when they did go into the conquering times and the times of battle, they would call the men from those tribes and they would come help them to battle uh, and to drive out the inhabitants of the land. So uh, we find the third section of that book uh, divided into the times of uh, division and settling of the land. The first uh, part of the book uh, only covers a period of about one month. The second part where they're in Canaan deals with uh, an area of time that's about seven years as best we can tell. We get those numbers from the age of Caleb. Uh, Caleb is the second fellow besides Joshua. If you remember back when Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan to spy out the land after only about a year in the wilderness. And they came back and they said, boy, truly this land flows with milk and honey. It's fantastic. But ten of them said, but they have giants in the land and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And they said, we're scared. We don't think we can do it. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, God has promised us the land. Let's go. And if we remember back, because of their unbelief, they did not get to go into the promised land. In fact, the Bible says that there would not be any of them left. So uh, someone asked me just the other day, did anybody other than Joshua 
uh, go into the promised land that were there from Egypt. And the only other one that I know of biblically is Caleb. Uh, Caleb and Joshua were allowed to enter into the promised land. The rest of them were a new generation that were born in the wilderness. Everyone else died in the wilderness that had come out of Egypt. And um, if we can find other indications in the Bible where it says others have gone in there, show them to me, please, because I'd like to be right on the subject. But as best I have understood from Scripture, those are the only two that I could find that the Bible says specifically were able to come all the way from Egypt and go into the promised land. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, Caleb uh, deals with the area of Kadesh. And again, you'll see on your map where that's located. He didn't want the easy thing. He wanted the hardest place. And there's a song in our songbooks that was written years ago. I don't know if it's in ours here, but in some hymn books called, I Want That Mountain. And uh, that, that song was based on the story of Caleb, who came to Joshua. And Joshua said, you're an old man. We'll give you an easy piece. He said, no, no, I want the one with the Philistines. I want the one with the giants on it. And uh, 80 years old, he wanted to conquer, you know. By the way, that ought to give us some encouragement, amen? Some of us are getting up in years and have some gray heads. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm thrilled this morning that I am now the pastor of a published author in our midst. And uh, Brother Mark wrote him a book the other day. We got it published for him, or the first uh, printing of it to get it corrected and everything. But, you know, do something for the Lord. You're never too old to do something for the Lord. Uh, I've seen so many people talk about, boy, I used to do this and I used to do that. And I think, well, why aren't you doing anything now? You know, let's do something for the Lord. Uh, somebody said, if you can't shoot, carry bullets, you know, do something. Uh, we do something for the Lord, stay busy. And Caleb is one of those fellows that just inspires me. As I get older, I want to be like him. I want to get to the end there and be like, well, I want the mountain. You know, I want to do something for the Lord. And uh, so that covers a period of about seven years. <clears throat> the final eight years of the book... Uh, until the time that Joshua dies, uh, uh, it's covered from about chapter 13 through chapter 24. So there's, it covers a period of about, uh, just about 16 years-ish or so, uh, and, uh, for the entirety of the book. Uh, Christ being pictured in the book of Joshua, there's no direct, uh, messianic prophecies. There have been a few that we've seen, uh, up until now where there's indication where God makes a promise of one to come. Uh, we don't see anything directly given in Joshua regarding that, but we do see some things that uh, are pictures of Christ, I believe. The first one uh, is Joshua himself. I believe just uh, in the fact of his name, certainly uh, the fact of his leadership. Uh, if you think about this, there is a, a very loose parallel given uh, that often is, is understood from Scripture where we consider uh, the Israelites being in bondage in Egypt to our old life, our sinful nature. And then, of course, we see the Passover taking place, the shedding of the blood and the applying of it to the doorpost. And Christ shed His blood, and the only thing that's needed is for you and I to put faith in it so it can be applied to us and given to us. And uh, then that gives us the ability to begin our wilderness wanderings, if you will. We're saved. We're on our way now to the Promised Land. That's our end goal. But we're pilgrims in this place right now, and we're looking forward. We often refer to the crossing of the Jordan River as the time of death. There are songs written to that effect, that when the time comes for me to cross the river, uh, that Christ will be with us. And uh, the idea of the promised land being an indication of us being in uh, eternity forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we take that loose parallel picture of, of the Old Testament, 
uh, you'll find that Joshua in, in, in and of himself is a picture of the reigning Christ during the millennial uh, kingdom. He's uh, helping to, to uh, bring people into their possession that he's promised to them. He's uh, setting them up. They're ruling together. Uh, and so we see a lot of uh, pictures and parallels in the life of Joshua with the life of uh, God, uh, life of Christ as uh, we get to his millennial reign, the end of his kingdom, or at the beginning of his kingdom at the end of the world. Uh, so we see some of that uh, taking place and being pictured in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also find that the captain of the host is mentioned. Let's turn to chapter number 5 for a moment. Joshua chapter number 5. And Joshua meets with the captain of the host. Joshua chapter 5. Let's look in verse number 13. Joshua chapter 5 and verse number 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us? Or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as a as captain of the host of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. I believe, again, this is an Old Testament uh, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, you say, why do you believe that? Why It just says He's the captain of the host. Why couldn't that not just be an angel? I have two reasons why I believe that it is not just an angel. One of them is the fact that the Bible says Joshua bowed and worshipped Him. Any other angel that man tried to worship would tell them to stop. They were not worthy of the glory. Uh, we also find in verse number 15 that he tells him, the, the, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. We find that reference being given when God appears to people. When the deity of the, of the Godhead appears. We saw it at uh, the burning bush with Moses. When God was at the burning bush and Moses comes in and begins to talk with him, uh, we find that God told him, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. And so for those two primary reasons, I do believe that this is not just an angelic being, but I believe this is the Christ himself in a pre-incarnate form coming to uh, speak with Joshua and to give him indication of how to fight the battle of Jericho. Once again, if somebody says, no, I don't think that's true, Pastor, I'm not going to argue the point, okay? I have some reasons why I believe it is. I think they are biblical reasons. Uh, but again, if you don't see it that way, that's between you and the Lord. And I'll tell you one thing that we will know absolutely for certain. When we get to heaven, we will know. <laughs> All right? And uh, that helps us to know that. But I do believe that it is a great picture uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and that it was Him in uh, pre-incarnate appearance in the Old Testament. And then there's one other thing that I think is a wonderful picture uh, of salvation, the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the story of Rahab. If you'll remember the story, when they went into Jericho, uh, <coughs> they sent two spies in, and they were getting ready to be captured, and a harlot, of all people, uh, takes them in and hides them and asks them for protection when Israel was going to come, and they said, we'll do that. We want you to take a scarlet cord and hang it out your window, 
And uh, when they see that scarlet cord, they will pass by you and they will not kill you. And you can come and be a part of the nation of Israel. Here's a couple of interesting thoughts about Rahab. We see here pictured, I think, one of the wonderful, wonderful pictures of the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ being used for redemption. But I think, I think one of the wonderful, beautiful truths of this is that we find in the book of Matthew... Rahab is in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about the fact that we as Gentiles are so grateful that God has allowed us to have a partaking in the salvation that He offers. Almost as if we think that that was just an afterthought in the New Testament. But I believe that when we find this about Rahab, we see the heart of God, even all the way back in the Old Testament, that His intent was for those that were going to be saved to be everyone included, not just His chosen people. Here's Rahab, a Gentile, a harlot of all people. And God says that she found a place in the Hall of Faith. She was able to come and join with the nation of Israel, her faith and her obedience to Christ. And what a beautiful picture we have here of the scarlet cord being hung out the window and the application of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that covers our sin. Was she worthy of it? No. Did God give great grace? Absolutely. The truth is, when we got saved, none of us were worthy of it, neither were we. We're just sinners. By the way, we're still sinners. The difference now is we're saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful. One of these days we're going to take this old fleshly nature off, this old sinful nature. It's not going to be a part of us anymore. We're going to go to heaven. We're not going to have to fight these things or battle these things anymore. We're going to get a wonderful... Uh, the Bible talks about it being a glorified body. You say, well, how's that glorified body going to be? I've had a lot of people ask me that. There's a few things that we're allowed to know about it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that about our glorified body that, that we don't know whether it's going to be like. That's up to the Lord. But there are some things we know a little bit about. It's going to be incorruptible. We know that. It's not going to grow old. It's not going to have frailties. And I don't have to wear eyeglasses anymore. I think everybody will be bald because God only made a few perfect heads. The rest He had to cover with hair. So, I don't know about that, but that's, a, that's in First Gregalonians there, so don't take that as Bible. Uh, but I look forward to that day. I do. And a wonderful idea that we get to be uh, with the Lord in heaven because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's look at a couple of key things about Joshua, and I'll give you just a couple of notes here. And, uh, again, just a high-level overview of the book of Joshua. We're not trying to dig deep into it. Uh, you can go back and study it, but you can kind of get a gist of how, how it all works together here by this. The key word is conquest. Uh, we find in chapter number 1, take a moment to turn over there with me. Let's look in chapter number 1 and verse number 2. Chapter 1 and verse number 2, and I want us to see this very, very clearly. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful uh, truth to look at in Scripture. Moses, my servant, is dead. And, of course, Joshua... Uh, is getting ready to take the reins here, and God's uh, indicating this. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, 
unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. So again, God is reiterating His promise to the nation of Israel that every place that their foot had tread, and all the way back even to the time of Abraham, that God was giving that land to them. Now look over to Joshua chapter 23. And again, just you take both of these passages together. I think there's a wonderful truth that's seen here. Joshua chapter 23 and verse number 14. Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. Joshua knows he's getting ready to die. And ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Can I encourage us in something? If God said it, it's going to happen. Period. End of story. God does not promise something or commit to something and then not do it. It ought to help us to have our faith strengthened. But can I tell you, in the days that we live, it really ought to bring great comfort to us. Because He's promised us some things that we're not going to be here to suffer the great tribulation. We're going to be raptured out of this place. It ought to bring us great comfort. It also ought to bring us great conviction to be faithful to do all that we can, to be diligent, to do all that we can to reach people with the gospel before that time comes. Wonderful truth, I think, that's found over and over and over in Scripture is God promising something and then fulfilling it. No matter how extreme it may seem, no matter how big it may seem, I don't, I don't know if we understand, we, you know, we read this book and it's to us we read it, it's in the pages of a book. Could you imagine getting ready to go into Canaan the Philistines are there. I mean, these guys are these guys are mean. They they study war from the time they're youth. They're going to go into these cities that these Philistines and these Canaanites had built up. They're going to conquer the land. I mean, we're just a bunch of ex-slaves. We've been wandering in the wilderness for forty years. What do we know about battle? What do we know about war? I'm I promise you that. There were some that looked into that in the country and said, boy, this is a major thing. You ever look at something that you think God might want you to do and think, that's just too big. Man, I don't know if I could do that. If it's something God wants us to do, He'll enable us to do it. And He'll be faithful to bring us through it. Don't be afraid. William Carey, who was known as the father of modern missions, made this statement. He said, you need to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. We need to learn to expect great things from God and then go out and attempt them. It ought to surprise us when God doesn't do something mighty, when God doesn't do something powerful. Uh, we need to be busy being faithful in these things. Um, we'll find a little bit here, and I'll just give you a couple of uh, just words of survey here as we give the last little bit here. Um, it took obedience and faith, and this is kind of the main high lesson that you learn from the book. It took both obedience and faith for God to give them victory as they crossed into Canaan land. It took both obedience and faith. And then I put this note down. Obedience is always the end result of faith. 
Obedience is always the end result of faith. If we trust God the way that we should, obedience is not going to be a problem for us. Uh, obedience sometimes is because of our lack of faith. We don't obey. We don't believe that God can, so we don't. We don't follow Him. We don't do the things He's asked to do. But always, obedience is the end result of our faith. And then uh, there is an establishing of six cities. And uh, I'll give you a map. It will show these on the map as well. They were called cities of refuge. And Joshua is the place where God sets these up. <clears throat> In chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, you'll find uh, six cities that are given as, as, as cities of refuge. The city of Hebron, the city of Shechem, the city of Kadesh, the city of Golan, the city of Ramoth, and the city of Bezer. And these cities were given, three on each side of the Jordan River, as cities of refuge. And if by accident... You were you killed someone. They would, today we would call it manslaughter. It was something that you didn't intend to do, but it happened. They were under the law uh, obligated, or many family members believed that they were obligated. They were certainly given the authority under the law to go and take uh, that life for taking their their family member's life. And so, uh, if it was done by accident, it was something that was not malicious. It was not intentional. You could flee to one of these cities of refuge. And there you could stand and the judge would determine whether it was of malice intent or whether it was uh, by accident. If it was by accident, you were allowed into the city of refuge and there you could live the rest of your life and you would be safe and protected. I've thought often of the cities of refuge. When the Bible talks about the fact that we are under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ, under His wings, we are sheltered. And the fact that Jesus said... Uh, I have you in my hand, the palm of my hand. He said, I am my Father one. He said, no man can pluck you out of my hand. He said, no man can pluck you out of my Father's hand. And you're in that one too. And I think of that as a wonderful thing, the city of refuge. We were guilty. I don't know if it was guilty by malicious intent or if it was guilty by ignorance. But we came to a city of refuge. And God allows us to be sheltered there. And aren't we glad for that? And you can take some time to read a little bit about the cities of refuge. There's a lot to be learned, I think, there as well. Let's go ahead and be dismissed in a word of prayer. And uh, I'll put the notes here on the back table. There are a couple notes there that I think I left in there when I was typing. I forgot to delete them out of here uh, that don't have anything to do with Joshua. When you see those, those are the ones from, like, Numbers, I think, or Deuteronomy, whatever I've opened up the file to, to print from, so, uh, to type it. So let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that you'll bless and use it. And Lord, may we learn from it some things that will help us as we see some of these truths in the book of Joshua. Lord, they're so precious to us. The fact that you've included us as Gentiles in this wonderful gift of salvation. Lord, what a joy to know that we can be saved on our way to heaven. Now, the, awful, the, the several times where you show uh, the pictures of uh, you coming again and uh, ruling and reigning in the millennium period. Things that we look at and we say we'll get to rule and reign with you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to look forward to that day. And uh, Father, we do pray for the rapture and the time that uh, you'll come and get us again, that uh, you will make it soon. Until then, I pray that you would help us to be diligent. May we be busy reaching people with the gospel before it's eternally too late. We pray that you'll dismiss us with your blessings and bless the service to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.